0: Hello everybody, I am more than pleased to bring to you this interview with Charles Shaw, who is Global Director for Learning and Development at Facebook. He specializes in diversity and inclusion. Charles and I have been friends for a number of years now. I really wanted this interview and I'm grateful he consented. This is part one of a two part series. After I got to know Charles, I would ask him, "Now, how did you become Charles Shaw? He'll explain it here. I wanted to cover this part of his of the interview first. In part two, we will dive deeper into the work he does, and the work he believes needs to be done to create inclusive cultures. So today, he's going to talk about four topics. First, he's going to talk about growing up as a poor black boy in a mostly black neighborhood. You know the stats. His amazing mother had limited resources, yet set him on the path for success. He will talk about how she did it and how he thrived. Next, he'll talk about his dissertation. Now, he has a subject that you might not have suspected he would research. I certainly didn't. You will hear his fascinating description of what he found out. Then he will talk about leadership presence and authenticity. Since I've known Charles, he's shown up as an authentic leader. He will talk about how all of us can bring that part of us out and forth into the workplace. We will end with his thoughts on Juneteenth and Pride Month. Here is part one of the interview with Charles Shaw. Hi, Charles.
1: Hey, Jean. How's it going?
0: Uh, Fine. I am so delighted to have you here. And I'm going to read now your very impressive credentials. So, everybody, this is Charles Damien Shaw, Ph.D., with pronouns he, him, and his. Charles is Global Director for Learning for Diversity and Inclusion at Facebook. He says his specialty is organization development, leadership and workforce development, performance mastery, and diversity and, and inclusion. Charles got his PhD from Alliant International University in San Francisco, with a focus on organizational psychology. He has a fascinating dissertation, which I'm going to ask him about in a minute. So y'all hang on. You'll be blown away when you find out more about it. So let's start just with a general focus. Okay, Charles, I wanted you here. Excited to have you here because you are the Quintess, (laughs) I shouldn't choose words, I can't say. You're the epitome of leadership in the racial and social justice arena. You're in corporate America in a Fortune 50 company, not even a Fortune 100, Fortune 50, maybe a Fortune 25 company for all I know. And you have emerged as a leader with an impressive title in that setting. So let's trace your journey of how you got here. I know you grew up in Third Ward, Houston. So tell us about Third Ward, tell us about your childhood and what that was like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Jean, can I first say thank you for inviting me to talk with you today? Um, Really looking forward to this conversation and you are very, very kind. Uh, So thanks for all that acknowledgement. Yeah, for sure. I I am proudly from an area of Houston called Third Ward and I actually grew up on an area We're in an area of Southmore and Dowling. And Third Ward, as many people may not be aware of, is one of a historically Black community. So lots of rich history, lots of prominent figures, and lots of people are just, as we know, from the the Third Ward in Houston, Texas area. And so from elementary school all the way to high school, um, I grew up in that area, and I'm particularly proud of that. When I think about that upbringing, it was, it's stumbling, honestly, to think about. Um, I grew up in a single parent home. My mother, like, worked every single day to ensure that we were provided for. And she would literally um, schedule time for uh, my siblings and I to engage in the community, like, super structured. Like, she let us. You know, uh, have fun with our friends. But what stood out to me was how thoughtful she was about who I engaged with, where, um, how I engage, and the types of activities that I, I was involved with um, at a fairly young age, which included gymnastics, track, baseball, basketball. We used to do a, a game back in the day called kickball, which was like super okay. fun in the like in the community. You may be familiar with that, but. Yes. Yeah, those, those are my fondest memories of, of growing up in 3rd Ward and like going to a school called Turner Elementary, which I understand is no longer around, but also being a, a graduate of Jack Gates High School, which is, which is a historically uh, Black high school in the, in the Houston, Texas area. So those are some of the memories that stand out to me in terms of being for 3rd Ward and more specifically Houston.
0: Turner. Is that corner Southmore and whatever that side street is? Is that on Southmore?
1: No, it's not on Southmore. It's further deep, um, like by St. Mary's. There's like a church and a school. Right. Like, And I can't think of the the, the street that it's on. Like it's, it's, it's slipping me currently, but it's not Southmore.
0: Okay. Yeah. I was getting that confused with the locker. Cause that's where my sister used to teach.
1: Yes. Another school. Yeah. Another school. Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay. So your mother was structured. And do you think that that early structure has affected how you developed?
1: Oh, no doubt. No doubt.
0: Say more. Um,
1: yeah. I think so much of what we learn as adults comes from our socialization and upbringing. And for me, I didn't even realize till I was much older, the cues that I was taking from my mother, really around how she had very little, but managed to make a lot of it or became so incredibly resourceful with what she had. And I think um, her resourcefulness is definitely something I picked up, but how to, you know, structure your resources in such a way that it, w- it was not um, all or nothing game. Like, either I can get this or do this or I can't. You know, so much of that was around, well, here's what I can do at this time, right? And then maybe later, you know, I'll do something else or purchase something else or allocate resources to something else. And um, I think that my mom's secret sauce was definitely around structuring the resources that she had and also structuring our lives to accommodate how we distributed those resources and those those dollars. So um, that stands out to me the most in terms of what I, I learned from my mother.
0: Cool. So let's talk about race. You're growing up in a predominantly, if not exclusively Black neighborhood. What's your earliest memory of there being a racial difference?
1: Yeah, my earliest memory, I think for me, I observed that a number of our teachers in elementary were white and they weren't black. And that white people essentially, in my memory, existed in two places, in education, in the schools, and on the television. And I associated that with authority, power, um, being better, having more Um, and so anytime my family and i discussed white people it was it was the idea that they it's not superiority it was positioning i think that they were never without um or that they had control or um They had a a particular positioning in society and in our lives. And I would see that on television. Um, I would notice how my family would change their voices to accommodate how they showed up with white people, either on the phone or in person. And so early on, it, it sent signal to me that there was a certain way we should be behaving when we were in the presence of or around or engaging with people who were white that was distinctly different than people who were Black, which felt more casual and familiar and arguably safe. And so I didn't know that that was called race. I, I, you know, in the way that we talk about race now, I definitely knew that there was difference and that difference was marked by the color of skin. But I couldn't have had a conversation with you about race as a kid. I knew that I'd I fundamentally understood that there was a difference in the way that whites and Blacks engage with each other. One participant just described the mood and it was all just, just it was a, what we would say, survive. And, like, I, and I remember listening to her, like I could like literally feel and touch the mood of what it meant to be in community with each other, listening to either Marvin Gaye or some singer during that time And everything in the world was going on outside those walls or outside those doors. And it was just fascinating to me. And then some of the younger Black women talked about being entrepreneurs and how listening to their family members talk about like having to work a nine to five all day. And they had thought about ownership as a business person. I remember one participant sharing how members in the community at the time would meet in the basement. um, of their home during the week to just have a party and 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 commune and be in community with each other and listen to music and do what teenagers and young people did. And it was as if I could both see and touch and taste the, the mood as she described it. And so I wrote my dissertation using lots of imagery and words to capture the experiences of these different women as they recalled in their formative years growing up. The research on generational differences is well, really likened
0: i just want to say that i have vivid basement party memories do I, you I, oh yes so I'm this young, so you get it ray charles yeah oh i have vivid that was my that's my teenage and young adult years uh so, yeah in basements
1: so you get it so so In a lot of the research that I did prior to talking with this woman, that type of storytelling didn't come up, right? So that didn't emerge in some of the more popular literature. But if you dig deeper into the experiences of Black women and to different um, communities or persons of color, there are very unique stories that will emerge that are so important to tell and to share and to connect with. So, just like I'm sharing it with you, you also can recall that. And you too have also a shared and collective experience of that. And that's what made my research around generational differences with Black women so fascinating. There was a shared history, a shared perspective. And I know that Black people and Black women aren't monolithic, but there is something to say about a shared cultural and lived experience that speaks volumes.
0: We go. I could go to Chicago, I could go to LA, where is the party? We somebody's basement, same music, same dance, and then it would get picked up by the white kids on television. But mm. we 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 generated it first. Yes. So tell as, me as the
1: story goes, as the story goes. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yes. So tell me this. There is though you were you're presenting on white generational differences at the workplace, and you're researching black generational differences for your dissertation. Contrast the two, just pick any error and tell me what you see as a difference.
1: I think the biggest difference are, I think the biggest difference, honestly, across all the generations, um, not even just unique to an era. And it came out really clearly in all of the participants across all the different generational eras was hair.
0: (laughs) You got that right.
1: (laughs) And the ongoing, persistent, relentless negotiation of identity as it relates to black women's hair. And I'm glad you're laughing because I was so struck by this. Um, The first thing I thought was like, um, yeah, I don't spend time thinking about my hair and the judgments or the, the way people, what people may think of it as a cisgendered man, I don't think about that. I was struck that all the women talked about the ongoing negotiation of what to do with hair, how they may be judged by their hair. Uh, one one of my participants called out uh, being in a board meeting or some meeting where a woman made a comment about her hair being different than last week and how it had gone on, had underwent a radical transformation over the weekend. Like, I don't know if it grew in length or something, but, but she was shocked and I think embarrassed by that public um, recognition of her hair by someone who wasn't black. And I think I write in my dissertation that, you know, what's unique to black women as evidenced by the consistency of all these stories was that black women in over and over negotiate identity in a variety of ways that other groups don't and other people don't. And so to be able to name that, identify that, and give that visibility. And there's tons of, and this was in 2009, 10. So this is like a decade ago. And there's been a lot of like documentaries and writings about hair. And I think we talk about it very normally and casually. But at the time, I hadn't thought about it in that same way. One, I think I'm privileged because as a, as a man who wears my hair pretty short, I don't have to think about those things and have never thought about negotiating it in the same way. Um, but also the angst that I think that Black women carry around sometimes with respect to their hair on, and on one side, and then the pride that's felt by hair on the other side. So just an interesting, interesting insight for me. And, you know, I listened to my, my, my my colleagues were black women and this whole thing about like, don't touch my hair, like from Solange Knowles, Beyonce's sister, is a very real thing, you know, not just physically, but symbolically, culturally. It's it's a thing, and I think people need
0: to know that. Okay, so let's take this to the workplace. Because mm. I personally have spent an enormous amount of time on my hair. So. I have hair story, but every woman, Black woman I know has a hair story.
1: Oh, yes, and all my participants had a hair story, all so, of them.
0: So I want to ask you, for the workplace, for whites now hearing this, what should they do or not do about what are do's and don'ts around Black women's hair?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I don't I think the the first do um, uh, is get educated. I'm always gonna say that. Do a little research. Right? I mean I can I can likely, if I like really think about it, rattle off a do or don't list. I'm probably not the, the the expert in this area, but what I will say is like get do a little research, like Google. YouTube. There's a documentary produced by Chris Rock on hair. Just educate yourself to better understand the cultural context of Black women's hair. And for I think if you're a woman um, and you're not Black, I think you may have some of the same challenges and dynamics. Um, But I think when you overlay the the context of being Black uh, with it, I think it takes on um, a different meaning. So that's the first thing that I would tell people who are like wanting to better understand the historical context and the weight attached to hair for black women. I think in the, in the workplace, um, there are the usual suspects around touching hair, inquiring into hair that I think that many people who aren't black and often white people feel very comfortable, like inquiring around, around hair. And I think sometimes it's particularly well-intended. I think the question is what's, What's driving that curiosity? What you know, particularly in the workplace, and what's what can often be a very um, intended to be a harmless gesture of acknowledgement or a compliment or curiosity can often turn into um, something landing really, really wrong. That that really lands wrong on Black women in terms of the the the, the gumption to either inquire, touch. Get curious about publicly that you may not do with your other colleagues. Right. And so I don't see, I literally don't see a lot of people asking uh, men, Oh, like your hairs, I mean, can I touch your hair? Can I touch your fade?
0: Right. Like
1: what? You know, so I think there's something to that that requires a little bit more interrogation.
0: Okay. So I'm surmising you're saying stay away unless you have enough familiarity or permission or something.
1: Absolutely. Particularly where you don't have relationships with black women. Stay- don't do it. Just yeah, don't do it. Educate yourself. And even the women that you do know, don't assume that they're comfortable with it either, just because you do have relationship. You know, again, I think the greater you can establish some trust, I would say err on the side of caution. Um, And that's just historical context and like as you would treat any culture. But in this particular um, instance, uh, do a little research on Black women and hair. Read my dissertation.
0: (laughs) Read your dissertation. I'll put that in the notes. Okay. So you have told me that people comment that you're a different thinker. Yeah. And you've also commented on me about leadership presence Um. and and the two things parallel to me. So talk about, there are a lot of people who are torn with it in the workplace, wanting to conform, wanting to fit in, but fitting in is contradictory with being a different thinker, fitting in doesn't necessarily mean having presence because most people don't. Mm -hmm. So talk about how you see, what it means to you to be called a different thinker. What does it mean to you to have leadership presence?
1: Yeah, those are great questions. I, I think that this is the role of really powerful educators is to draw out what's unique and powerful about any student or learner that comes through their class or in their presence. And so I knew, you know, in school early on in work that the way that I think about things, I, I struggle to explain an idea. Like I, was, I, I used to struggle with it. I, I knew that I, I had lots of thoughts around it, but I couldn't articulate it in a way that my colleagues or boss or peers would understand until a professor in grad school, I was explaining to him my experience going to a historically black college and being on the debate team and how successful I was and how successful the team was. And he just asked me, why were you so successful in debate and the work that you did? I said, well, because I can take a theme, break the theme down Come up with clear points on the themes. He said, yeah, and that's how you write papers. That's how you do research. Like you got got really curious on the theme or the topic area. And then you start formulating some hypotheses as to either prove or disprove its validity or truth. And I thought, that's what I'm doing. Like, wait, like this is like, like he said it way better than I could say it, but I didn't have the language to communicate what I was doing, but I knew I approached my thinking style approached like big things categorically under those things. There are some themes that need to be organized in a way to make meaning. And I and I didn't know how to articulate that. And so when I'm faced with a problem, whether in business, at work, working with teams or leaders or managers, I'm really listening for themes categorically. I'm listening for connections that are both obvious and not so obvious. I'm looking and listening for tensions um, that may exist between subcategories or themes. And I I literally approach my work that way. Like, how should we be thinking about this problem, right? How should we be thinking about what makes it true or not true? But most importantly, why is is this even worthy for conversation or to solve? And that's where I, I think about tensions. So the, how should we be thinking about this from a leadership perspective is how can we show up in the places that we work and really articulate for other people, how we're thinking about a problem, Have we thought about it. Um, And it doesn't have to be perfectly packaged, but I think you can draw out how you personally think about the issue that you're confronted with and what may be the connections, whether large or small. And... Being able to share that and have other people build on it. And I think that's what leadership presence is, that you have the courage to share an idea or the way you're thinking about something and have other people latch onto that idea and then share how they're thinking about it to either refine it, grow it, um, or jointly problem solve it. Um, And I think that's how I've been, you know, been thinking about leadership presence and If I'm in a meeting or working with a team or working with leaders, sometimes you put an idea out there, not fully formed or fully baked, but that can become infectious, and other people need some trigger.
0: I just want to unpack because you're saying a whole bunch of stuff, so I want to unpack what you just said. Okay. Sure. Okay. First of all, there are some people who have thoughts. Okay, go back to before you talk to that professor. You had thoughts, but didn't think that you could articulate them well. You had a mentor who said, well, this is the way you do it. What would you say to the person, to the you? I know a ton of yous out there who have thoughts, but they're censoring their thoughts because they're thinking, I can't say it right. And I don't know how to say it and blah, blah, blah. What do you say to that person?
1: I say get your thoughts out there, right? Start like practicing or experimenting with just articulating your thoughts in a safe space or with people who can support you. Because I I think that sometimes we try to be really linear with our thinking or we want when it comes out to be perfectly packaged and making sense. And I don't think creativity and innovation thrives that way. I think just getting it out for other people to hear Um, and making it visible or heard by the right people or the people that you're working with, um, that collective exchange can shape the idea. So that's the first thing I would say. Let's get it out. Like, let's get the ideas out. Okay,
0: you use the word half-baked. Are you telling people who want to have a presence, want to be heard, that it's okay to surface half-baked ideas? Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes, because I think that if it's fully baked, then where where room does someone else have or do you have to make it better? And I mean, I think that's the spirit of experimentation and, and creativity and innovation, that by the time other people weigh in or you share your half baked or not fully formed idea, you give it the opportunity to be refined and grown over time and improved over time.
0: Okay, so hang on. I know people who, if they surface an idea and someone contradicts it or changes it, they feel slighted and and put down as though they had done something wrong. What would you say to that person? I'm sure you know people like that too. Oh yeah, for sure. Cannot stand for anybody to comment because they feel personally humiliated if their idea is not taken fully, exactly as they presented it. So what do you say to that person?
1: To that person, I would say, distinguish the idea from the person, right? I don't view a disagreement on my idea as a personal attack of me or an indictment of my worth or value. I think in the spirit of improving an idea or a project or an initiative, you need other people to disagree with you to challenge the idea in the spirit of improving it or making b- making it better or testing the idea with another way to think about it. And their way of thinking about it is, if, is informed by their experience, their background, their perspective. And I, my view is that we need to be open to that because that's how we all get better.
0: So doesn't I would just- that mean, I'm stupid? Doesn't that mean I don't know? Doesn't that mean something bad about me?
1: No, it doesn't. It doesn't mean anything about you other than you're courageous enough to share your idea in a public space with the hope and intention of making it better. It is not an indictment of you and your value and your worth. And I really want people to separate those two things. And to be fully fair and to be fully transparent, I used to be one of those people. Like, you disagree with my idea, I was shut down. And then I would withhold all of my ideas moving forward because I actually took it as a personal attack. I no longer do that. And I haven't done that in years, but I I get it because sometimes it takes people a long time to even muster up the gumption to even share. And once they share, um, their idea may be met with debate or disagreement. I think that's okay. Like the swelling will go, go down in the morning. That initial shock to the system can often happen, but it shouldn't it shouldn't. Um, cause you to withhold future ideas to make um, something better. So I would really offer that advice and moving through life. People will disagree with you and disagree with how you think and your perspective. That's, that's how life works.
0: All right. I didn't know we were going to get this out of it, but I am delighted. Okay. So let's shift to L and D and D and learning and development Diversity and inclusion. Let's talk about those two as concepts. Because a lot of people don't really and especially you're in a mega company and you've worked in big, big companies that have that. But some of the smaller organizations, it's all mushed up together with HR. <clears throat> so just make a conceptual distinction for those who don't understand it.
1: Between DNI and L and D? Uh-huh. Yeah, I think traditionally a lot of diversity and inclusion functions have focused on compliance, um, hiring and recruiting, primarily hiring and recruiting traditionally. Learning and development has traditionally focused on uh, training or building skill, or developing careers, or going through something, uh, an experience, either in-person training or online or e-learning where you were developing your personal and professional skills. My role is to look at how do we build an inclusive culture through the education and development of people? How do we tap into mindsets, cultivate behaviors, get people to think and behave differently so that the people who work at the company feel a sense of being included, feel a sense of working on a team, feel a sense that they belong at the company. And that's very intentionally done. I think when you don't have those two, you can run the risk, D&I can run the risk of not focusing on the education or education through osmosis, and L&D can run the risk of not considering who's on the margins or what's happening in the larger oh. system that requires um, a different way to think about who's at the table and who isn't, whose perspective is being prioritized and whose perspective is missing. You know, What does it mean for the people that I work with to be in a different country or different region or different office or different background? So I love that I get the opportunity in my current role to really be intentional about how do we build an inclusive culture through educating people, through challenging ideas or assumptions or cultivating ideas and assumptions in the spirit of creating a workplace where people can not only thrive, but they can really be uh, purposeful about showing up as who they are. I feel very, very strongly about that.
0: Showing up as who they are. So the question I was formulating in my mind before you said that was, is it really possible to have an inclusive culture? You know, there are a lot of people out there who just think this is impossible in today's age. So is it possible, two questions. Is it possible to have an inclusive culture? And is it possible to have a workplace where we can show up as who we are? Does that really, is that is that a pipe dream or is that possible?
1: I think it is possible. And I think it's this experiment that we've been undergoing for years, right? And I think it takes more than statements. I think it takes more than um, words on a website. I think it takes deep, fundamental and intentionality for people to really come to work committed to creating an inclusive environment in their interactions in their decision makings so yes it is possible but that possibility is a good intention unless we put actions and mechanisms behind it that really require people to be fully committed
0: give one action just one
1: i think one action that people can take is are their meetings fully inclusive are, are you prioritizing, like, how your meetings are structured? Um, who's participating in the meeting and who's not? You know, who gets to speak up, who has voice, who doesn't?
0: Well, if she doesn't want to speak up, that's her problem. The floor is open. So how do you respond to that? Well, yeah,
1: I would say, well, what's preventing her from speaking up? Have, have you created the environment, whoever you are as leader, manager, team member, for people to feel comfortable speaking up and know that there are other ways to participate with not speaking up publicly or by emailing or sharing your ideas? Um, I think the real intention is, have you exhausted everything you can to ensure that the environment that you've created in meetings or the actions you're taking fully includes everyone, that you've removed barriers or friction? Give an
0: example, make this real concrete because people literally don't know what to do.
1: Yeah, no, I, like I think one of the things is like turning your cameras on and off, right? On a call, do you turn your cameras on? Do you turn them off or do you give people choice that either is acceptable, right? So do you send out as a part of the agenda, it's your choice to turn your cameras on or off we acknowledge that both are legitimate and valid ways of engaging. We want to hear from you, but we also want to honor your choice. I think that one is the one I've been seeing most often. is around cameras on and off. In Zoom meetings, you're talking about. In Zoom meetings, absolutely. And people say, well, I want to see faces, turn your cameras on. And I think there's greater power in the choice. that And let, like, letting the choice around inclusion be up to the person who's actually participating.
0: Especially if I'm having a bad hair day.
1: <laughs> Especially if you're having a bad hair day. <laughs>
0: Okay.
1: So, so. And Jean the second part of your question is, can we allow people to show up as fully as they are? Um, if they get to to decide what full authenticity means to them, absolutely. And I think that's a nuanced question, right? Like, I think there's authentic enough, enough of myself to show up. And I get to decide, in partnership with the company, what that means for me. I mean, obviously there are there are guardrails because I, I I don't know if we want everyone showing up as that's who they are all, all the time. Government. There right? we go. In yeah. a way, Yeah, I think. But I think the spirit of that is in a way that's productive and healthy for the organization and for the people they work with, right? And if it doesn't produce unnecessary friction um, for you to leave parts of yourself outside of the outside of the workplace. I mean, I think we want people to feel engaged, happy, um, supported. And if that means that you need to show up um, as your most authentic self, absolutely. And if that's healthy and productive for the people that you work with, um, and is in alignment with the values of the organization, absolutely. I think that's healthy and we should be aspiring to that.
0: So if my authentic self wants to lay your behind out because I don't like what you said, what's wrong with that?
1: Lay your behind out as in like disagreement like disagreement or oh yes,
0: disagreement.
1: Yeah but, I, I, well, I, well
0: or oh, cursing them out. Let's let's just take it to the extreme. I'm trying to get where the guardrails. If I'm like authentic- guardrails- wanting to curse you out. What's wrong with that? Well, I I think that's,
1: I think there are behaviors that are acceptable and not acceptable with regard to how we engage with each other. And a minimum requirement is respect. If your authentic self requires disrespecting a colleague, then I think that's below the line and shouldn't be acceptable. Remember, in the spirit of being respectful, in the spirit of being productive, being respected, behaving and engaging in a way that moves us forward, that's acceptable. But if we're cursing people out or engaging in behavior, we think it's uh, not acceptable or unacceptable or not productive. I don't see a space for that.
0: Okay. So I'm talking with someone literally last week who was explaining that some people just need to be told off because they're racist, sexist, and wrong what would you say to that person?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I don't think it's that cut and dry, right? I don't think it's that simple just to tell people off. Um, And I think you can be direct with someone about what your perspective is on their behavior and the consequences for that, if you choose. Um, and, And there are variables, right? It depends on your relationship with them. It depends on the context, the situation. Um, I always err on the side. I'm in education field, right? So I'm always on the side of like like, what are we learning here? Who is this in service of? You know how do we grow from this experience? And I don't think it's that cut and dry to simply tell someone off. Um, and again, I don't know the context, but I would say, you know, more often than not, my experience and what I see people doing is like authentically and genuinely trying to engage in points of disagreement and behavior that may be counterproductive to our cause on creating a more inclusive environment or an inclusive world, right? And there are extremes to um, a variety of different examples. When we're in the extreme, I mean, I think there's consequences and implications for those extremes. I find those extremes rare. Um, I find what's more average is that we are having a disagreement um, on language, Perspective, the role of law, the role of education, the role of all the different global issues and crises. But if the extremes are that you are not listening, you are compromising my and my people's humanity, you are advocating violence, you are doing things that are just absolutely not productive for what we're trying to do, I consider that an extreme. If this person is talking about that, I think there are there are ways to address that, that may be relative to that situation. But I don't think that's the, the norm.
0: Okay. My response at the time was, does it work? Say more. Well, if you're laying people out and calling them racist and sexist, do they decide, oh, I guess I won't do that anymore? Or do they just yeah. be bad and call you a bunch of names? And so, uh, so I'm interested, but people, uh, people are torn between this whole issue of authenticity and showing up as who I am uh-huh. and what's productive. What I like about what you're saying is the, and I might be putting words in your mouth, if I am, let me know, but you're saying that the question is, is it productive? Does it, does it, does it bring the team closer together or tear them apart mm-hmm. and that, that's the criteria for what was the limits of my authenticity.
1: Yeah, it's a good point, I agree. And I think it's, and, and what do we do with disagreement and debate and conflict, right? What if like, if you are willing to engage with me at a point of disagreement or conflict um, in a respectful way, I think that's above the line. I think that's fair. If that disagreement or point of departure of ideas leads to extreme behaviors like name calling and all that other stuff, um, I think that's an extreme. That means that something is broken in our rules of engagement for how we disagree. And if that then becomes the issue, that moves into an extreme. Now we're now that's not safe. That's feeling like weird and and not particularly productive. And we have to make different decisions when we are in that extreme. Do I disengage with the person? Do I remove myself? Is there an escalation to something more you know consequential? I don't know. I think there are different uh, decision points. But I'm solving for what I find in my experience, on average people are more than willing to debate, engage in a more productive conversation. And then there are extremes and those people, you know, who for if that's their decision to engage in that behavior, require a different type of um, engagement.
0: Okay, so let's, I want to start wrapping it up. So my question is, you describe yourself as a a black male. Mm -hmm. You're in a position with learning and development and DNI. What is it that Some white people know, but most don't in the workplace. If you had to give, if you had to describe something that white people who say, I want to learn, what is it that you think they need to learn?
1: That's a really good question. And we're going to talk about white people, but I only want to caveat that it could potentially be people from all different backgrounds, but there is a very distinct and particular dynamic with whites um, relative to Blacks and arguably other cultures, which is historical context on why Black people, um, Asian people of Asian descent, indigenous people um, got here today right, the historical context of these histories that are both steeped in harm, atrocity, um, um, unjust legislation, laws, um, treatment, that have made the way for the types of conversations that we're having today, that have in a number of ways produced a nuance and of experience and understanding and an inconsistency of understanding by whites that often make it very difficult to comprehend these issues, to engage with Blacks, to engage with um, Asian employees, or Asian people, or Indigenous people, or Latinx people that, uh, that are often taken for granted, right? So one example is the hair conversation. Okay. Why, why, if you, what I see white people genuinely and authentically admiring Black women's hair in their mind. And asking to touch it, it is void of the historical context is why that might be problematic around physical space, around identity, around the casual nature of even asking a Black woman about her hair and being able to physically make contact with it. Why might that, why might that be problematic? And ownership of my body. And ownership of a body. And like, why might that be problematic given the historical context, right? And that I think when people start to educate themselves a little more about these experiences, you're like, more often than not, that informs a different way of engagement, of building relationships, of having friends and family members that if you didn't have it, wouldn't produce the same outcome or the same relationship. So that's what I think that white people in particular could benefit from that I see most as a point of education and um, either lack of understanding or less familiarity or proximity to. Um, that I think that to me is, it's so clear to me, I'm going, yeah, I, I can tell this person either doesn't have that context or doesn't have those relationships.
0: I can tell this person doesn't have that context and have that relationship. Okay, let let me just think about on that phrase. What you're saying is, let me paraphrase this my way and you tell me if I'm on target or not for what you're saying. If I'm having an unease with a person of color, I need to inquire into history as to the source of that unease Rather than inquiring into what I did wrong or why that person is so sensitive or anything. Would you I go th- that far? Or am I taking beyond what you're saying?
1: No, I don't think it's that simple or that black and white. I think you need to identify what's causing you um, dis-ease. I think-
0: Because they act crazy.
1: Second.
0: <laughs> because the other person is acting all weird. That's why I'm uneasy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you need to identify what's causing you um, dis-ease or like discomfort. I think I'm suggesting that if, you, if your unease or dis-ease is happening consistently with the same types of people over time, then you may want to educate yourself as to what what's causing your dis-ease what historical context you need to be thinking about um, related to this group of people or these people and use that as one data point among a number of other data points in terms of your relationship, the interaction, your level of trust. But I think that historical context like, can certainly help as one, as one data point. And, and Jean, I love your questions and hopefully I'm answering your questions, but I think the problem is this critically thinking about the overlapping complexity of these things. They're not as cut and dry and simple as like problem solution in terms of like um, our culture.
0: Okay. I so think the historical context is one point. Yeah. So, narrow it down, Charles, because people are going to hear this. And if they hear, oh, it's very complex and you have to think of things, they're not, they're not going to get any guidance, they're not going to know what to do. So we need, I need something much more concrete. If you wanna narrow it down to a, make up a, a simple example of where people need a historical complex uh, context, let's, let's do that.
1: Mm. Where my mind is going is around indigenous people and the comments we make around um, the lowest span on the totem pole or why the Washington Redskins was problematic or eating buffalo wild wings um, and in indigenous cultures animals are spiritual symbols and are viewed as sacred but if you're in an interaction and you make an off-handed comment around something related to one of the examples i just gave you and and you're in conversation with an indigenous person who may be rubbed the wrong way because what you thought was a very casual interaction talking about Buffalo wild wings and the lowest man in the totem pole, the Washington Redskins, the things that you and your family have heralded and have loved throughout the course of your entire life. And yet, your indigenous colleague thinks that the way that animals have been used in the inappropriate ways that disrespects or dishonors some of the indigenous and native tribes, you wouldn't know that without doing education on the role of animals and indigenous and native culture. And so for me, that's a prime example of using education to better understand indigenous and native culture. And then in what ways at work might this interaction have gone off the rails or a comment that was intended to be innocent. Um, really is landing with profound um, harmful impact and potentially eroding the relationship. That's an example, for me, of historical context and the relationship of culture that not only exists for Indigenous people, but for Blacks, for Asians, for various cultures around the world. But we, without that context, our interactions um, can often erode and become problematic if we don't have it. That's just one example. But that's a perfect example. Thank you. That's yeah, no, for sure. I was, I was, I wanted to give examples of of casual interactions that go off the rail because that historical context context isn't understood or, or unknown. Right. And 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 that's just again, that's just one example. And so I ask people very specifically, now that you know that, what would you do differently? What approach would you take? How would you have approached the conversation now that you know,
0: right? Right, Right. great. Okay, so I'm gonna end with one question. You are here, I'm interviewing you, I want you here because you have accomplished a lot Mm. in your life. Go back in time to you at age 2021, 20, starting out, what advice would you give yourself?
1: Yeah, I think I would I, I love these questions. It's kind of like what would you tell your 10 year old self? And, yes. You know, I would probably say eat more, like just eat. Um my 20 year old self, you know, I think for me, you know, as a black gay man, I would have told myself and shared, I would have told myself that it's gonna be okay. You don't have to have it all figured out, right? Be who you are, um, speak from your truth, do the best that you can for your family and your community, and don't try to have all the answers. And I think that's been the challenge for many young people that I see now who try to have it all figured out at such a young age and life unfolds. And I think the real test is like having a strong support system and a community um, and friends around you. So as you encounter the different points of life, that you can embrace it and make the best decisions that you can at that time. That's what I would have told my 20 year old self.
0: Okay. So don't think you have to to have it all figured out. Okay, so you mentioned that you're gay. It's Pride Month. What does what's the there's Pride Month, there's Juneteenth. What's the mm. significance of both holidays to you?
1: Well Juneteenth has been celebrated in Texas for years and I'm so glad it's now a federally recognized holiday. It's around liberation, Jubilee, and emancipation and as, equal as, um, as as, much as we celebrate the atrocity, we need to celebrate the emancipation and the freedom that comes along with what this holiday means. I think Pride Month is a public recognition of members of the LGBTQ plus community um, being visible, living, thriving, and celebrating the different aspects of their identity. At the intersection of Juneteenth and Pride, is the recognition of LGBTQ plus people of color and black people who sit at those intersections living authentically and as wonderfully as they know how. Um, And for other people to see them living these incredibly glorious lives. Um, And I think that's the significance of both Pride and Juneteenth. Um, that I'm particularly excited about. I wore my my shirt today um, to acknowledge these intersections and what it means for me, um, who I am, and also the work that I'm doing.
0: Well, that sounds like a segue into a part two. Let's do it. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So thank you, Charles. I'm delighted to have you here. And uh, thank you for a most provocative and informative interview that took us places I had not anticipated.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I hope to people who are viewing this, they take away a few things uh, that'll help them along their journey.
0: Okay. Hello again. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Here's what I got from the interview with Charles. First of all, I started out with the question of how could a black boy who grew up on the corner of Southmore and Downey in Third Ward, Houston, Texas, end up as a leader at Facebook? You got a glimpse of the answer to that question. And it's partly that he had the good fortune to have an amazing mother who recognized his potential and provided the structure, and opportunities for him to excel. So at a young age, younger than a lot of people, child learned he had gifts and how to use those gifts and how to have the determination to succeed. Second is the hair thing from his dissertation. For those of you who want to understand why this is such a big deal, Check out Chris Rock's documentary on hair. The main thing is that I wanted is for you to see a gay black man talking about authenticity and leadership presence. Right now, we have members of Pathfinders, coaching clients, personal friends, all asking, can I really show up as myself at my current job? As Charles explains, yes, you can, but you have to work at it and it doesn't just come to you. We will all falter. We will all be corrected. So if we can learn from that and keep going, then that will make all the difference. Charles has gifts and he got off to a great start. He put time into who he is today. He's worked hard. Thank you for listening see you next week. And if you enjoyed this and enjoyed the blogs, please subscribe and post in the comments. I would love to hear from you. Thank you. See you next week.